Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Chloe Valdery. Chloe Valdery is the founder of Theory of Enchantment, and she's also a public intellectual and writer who's been published by The Atlantic, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. In college, she studied political science and specifically conflict resolution. And in her research on conflict resolution, she found that she didn't feel like it was getting as deep as it could to the heart of how we can improve conflict, which she believes is in actually helping people love each other better. So Theory of Enchantment takes pop culture and teaches people to understand social emotional learning and how to take care of each other better. She originally was going to use this to work with children, but after the George Floyd protest, she became more and more involved in the discussion around anti-racism, diversity, and inclusion. And I really love the way that she brings these things together in her work in promoting the idea of agopic love and how we can improve our connection to each other. The fundamental rules of her method, the theory of enchantment are treat people as individuals, not political um, abstractions. Criticize to uplift and inspire, never to tear down and destroy. And base everything on love and compassion. And this is something that I do feel is missing. Now, I didn't wanna get too deep into the racial stuff because uh, that's not really the focus of our podcast. It is something that has been coming up a lot in the movement community. And I think Chloe's work is really valuable for anyone who wants to understand that discussion better. However, I was particularly interested in talking to Chloe because we share an interest in the work of Jordan Peterson and the idea of archetypal stories. So this this, uh, narrative or this discussion actually is mostly about the idea of the divine feminine, the divine masculine, or the heroic masculine, the heroic feminine, and how we explore those things. And we touch briefly on how understanding those two aspects can help us come to solve some of the social dilemmas that we face. I'd love to have Chloe on and dive more deeply into that in the future, but I think that there's going to be a lot for you guys to get out of this conversation. Certainly, as I went back and listened to it again, I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. So without further ado, Chloe Valdery. So Chloe, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, yeah, welcome aboard. Thank you for inviting me. So I, I think I the first time I saw you was on the Dave Rubin report. Um, Ever so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> which is a while ago. And one of the things that you said that really intrigued me, and maybe maybe I've got the interview wrong, but one of the things you talked about was why you thought Moana was such a powerful story. And, yeah. um, and I really loved what you said because I've actually thought of Moana as, I, th- I think it's the most important sort of um, heroic narrative that we currently have. Hmm. Because there's some things that are, that are, I think are missing in the way that we've looked at things. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I was curious to just start out with why do you love Moana so much and why do you think it's an important story for us to, to study right now? Yeah, I mean, I'd say I think Moana is probably one of the more overtly um, psychoanalytic uh, pieces that has come out of Disney in a long time. I mean, obviously, a lot of their movies play with archetypes um, and are immersed deeply in this like construct of the hero's journey. But Moana is cool because um, of a whole host of reasons, but one of the most profound reasons is that like, The hero is also the villain and the villain is also the hero simultaneously. Um, Moana is about a young warrior princess who has to 
uh, basically heal her island, which is deteriorating because the goddess that ruled over the island, whose name, whose whose light side is called Tefiti, uh, descends into her shadow side and becomes Tika. And so it's really about these sort of very Jungian ideas of the shadow and the light and the fact that the shadow and the light exists within every single being. And Moana is the first Disney film that I've seen that really like plays up that uh, to, to a high degree and um, expresses it very much in a, in a beautiful, beautifully aesthetically, but also like from a philosophical perspective, invites the audience to wrestle with the fact that as they're seeing the plot unfold, um, that just as like Taka and Tafiti are the same being, they too as individuals have both the shadow and the light within them. And so Moana was the first movie. I saw it on the I saw it on an airplane, and it was just so profound. And I looked around, and I was just wondering to myself, does everyone understand how profound this film is, and and what it's what it's teaching us about ourselves, and about the complexity of ourselves, and about um, the human condition. So that's why that's one of the reasons why I think Moana is super cool. Another cool aspect of Moana is. Um, is in Ma the character of Maui, which is sort of Moana's sidekick, mm -hmm. because you know Maui, Maui is sort of like he starts out as this very much arrogant and shallow person who's also like very insecure because his parents abandoned him, um, and he has to go through his own heroic journey. It's interesting because I realized that like Moana isn't really a typical hero in the sense that she doesn't actually change throughout the film she's more of the spirit that awakens uh the uh, the the other heroes in the film which are which are uh which are maui and tafiti essentially so it's like a reorientation of the hero's journey from the perspective of the spirit that awakens so you, you, i know you're a big fan of Jungian stuff and yeah. i haven't deep into that but what's occurring to me all of a sudden is that you, it's almost like the anima is the central character. Yes, exactly. The Maui would be the traditional hero. Exactly. So his, it's it's a it's the, the heroes. Say again, sorry. His call to adventure and is 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 the is the meeting with the anima. Yes, exactly. Right. So when when Moana arrives is when she essentially awakens him to go on the adventure. But it's the first sort of heroic uh, tale that I've seen told from the perspective of the anima as opposed to from the perspective of the hero. That's a, that's a fascinating insight. The other thing that I, I really liked that you mentioned on that podcast was uh, the, the central moment where Tafiti or Taka is mm -hmm. transformed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, that there's that beautiful song and, and Moana says, I know who you are, right? And this, yeah. this not defined. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, that that's a, a beautiful illustration of, of of kind of the themes of your own work with Theory of Enchantment, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I'd be interested to hear you to, to kind of talk about that. What does that moment mean to you and how do you see that as kind of symbolic of how we need to approach um, maybe the current moment? Sure. So, I mean, there's this really magical, probably the most magical moment of Moana, which is when she sees Taka, who is this, for those of you who haven't seen Moana, uh, this lava uh, breathing, vengeful uh, demigoddess, basically. Um, and she sees her and she's holding the heart of Tafiti in her hand, which she must restore. And she has an aha moment when she looks at Taka. And she says, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. And that is an incredible insight into the human condition because what it suggests is that even if we are in an emotional state that is not helpful or healthy, uh, and we're sort of like being impulsive, especially in a vengeful, in a vengeful way, um, our capacity to change, and I think I would say that this is related to the redeemability, what we think of as the redeem redeemableness or the redeemability of human beings, um, is essentially, was essentially reflected in uh, Moana's observation of Tika, that she could change, that she could tra be transformed into Tafiti, 
uh, this insight that human beings can change is something that is borne out through the story of Moana. Of course, I think this is something we sort of pay lip service to. And we, we sort of, if, if anyone wants to come up to us and say, like, do you believe that people can change? I think our, I think our, on average, our knee-jerk reaction might be, well, yeah, especially when it comes to like teaching teenagers or teaching children, like we understand that human beings are in development, um, different developmental stages. Like that's something that we, that conceptually makes sense when it comes to like young people, but we forget that when, when it comes to adults, adults are also developing and have the capacity to develop, um, to mature. Uh, and so that, that is related to so many, that insight is related to so many uh, things that we discuss, not only on an interpersonal level, but also on a policy level when it comes to like the concept of restorative justice, which is fundamentally rooted in this idea of the redeemability of human beings uh, and in the idea that uh, no human being is their worst, is, is defined or should be defined by their worst moment and has the capacity to be rehabilitated. Another thing I'll say is someone brought this up to me recently is that in the original uh, sort of Polynesian telling of the story, uh, you know, it is actually the volcanoes that make the ground fertile. It's actually the volcanic, uh, you know, uh, region or aspects of the region that makes the ground fertile. And so there is this sort of yin-yang understanding of the telling of Moana, um, which is that on some level, taka is necessary. Uh, taka is, is anger, for example, needs to be harnessed. It doesn't need to be suppressed, but it needs to be harnessed and channeled in, in, the, right, in the right direction. And, um, and in this sort of, if, if you think of it as, as, as trying to include all of our emotions or, or the work of self-refinement being the work of being able to have a healthy, relationship with all of the emotions that we possess as human beings that includes anger right so anger shouldn't be suppressed or or denied it just needs to be channeled and harnessed in in a in a healthy way and this work of self-refinement is essentially what i teach people how to do uh in my in my startup the theory of enchantment um so that's just you know what comes to the top of mind uh based upon that question yeah absolutely um when you're talking about anger and to call one thing that just popped into my mind is you know um after all the protests started and COVID was happening and uh, you know i was struggling with with not feeling like i could articulate what i had to say and like it wasn't a safe time to to say much of anything so i went out first and i was meditating and i had this vision of a fire moving through a forest mm. a wildfire and and i had this this realization that anger is like fire in an ecosystem right it exists yeah. to move the dead wood to create change and yeah. to allow new things to grow and when the ecology is healthy the role of the fire is vital but yeah. when the ecology is unhealthy then the fire can easily spin out of control and become destructive mm -hmm. um, and and i i think in some ways the the message of moana might be that that when the fire has become destructive Mm -hmm. The answer is to, to see through the destruction. Yeah. And to be able to respond to it with love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that requires that insight um, that it was precisely when love was taken that was the catalyst for the descent into the destructive, rageful stage or phase uh, that Tika found herself in. And so it requires the you know, it, re it requires uh, love to be to be put back in the process. And of course, like this whole idea of restoring the heart of Tafiti, it's so on the nose, but you, you can miss it because it's a Disney film. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's very much on the nose. So I, I kind of, so when I started, so I, I told you I've been teaching parkour for many years now, and, uh, and then I moved into kind of teaching natural movement where I was combining parkour with martial arts and other mm -hmm. movement arts, taking people into nature to try and uh, do it. And then um, I encountered Jordan Peterson's work, and I felt really deeply in love with it. And at first, I didn't understand why I was so obsessed with it when I could be studying stuff that was more directly um, relevant to improving yeah. people 
athletic abilities. And then as I first started teaching, I started finding all these things boiling up from the intersection of that. And eventually I started telling a heroic story at the end of the first day and then uh, of teaching. And then we would kind of unpack why that had something to do with this, because fundamentally for me, the process of parkour in particular, but really any flow sport, and in some ways you can see it in any physical cultivation is it's a kind of a mini hero's journey. Every time you go out, you go out and mm-hmm. intentionally um, place yourself within a chaotic potential new situation and, and, and reach yourself. And, and so I'd been teaching that for a long time and I always told some variation of this dragon story. And then um, I was, I was struggling because that hero is always masculine, right? The hero is always male. And I was trying to understand that and understand how I, how I, uh, respected the polarity of male and female, but also made a space for the, for women to come into and be part of the process. Mm-hmm. And so Jordan said that the equivalent of the, of the hero's journey for women is the, uh, the, um, the beauty and the beast. Mm-hmm. I tried to tell that story at a, at a seminar and I got slapped down really hard by my female students, which is a great, okay. terrible experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, 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 I like stayed up all night meditating on it. And, and the story of St. George and the Dragon, there's d- different variations of that. But the one that I remembered had this really interesting aspect to it, right? So St. George, so the princess is, um, is going to be sacrificed to the dragon. And, he, um, she's taken out and she's chained up and then George finds her and George um, he offers to fight the dragon for her and she, she first the first interesting thing is she refuses to have him fight the dragon for her mm. right yeah because no it's bad enough I'm going to die right yeah nobody else needs to die for me but then the dragon shows up and George pierces the dragon with his lance but then the dragon after he frees the princess chases him behind a rock and he's unable to 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 kind of complete the defeat of this dragon. Mm-hmm. Princess takes her girdle and throws it at the dragon, and it wraps itself around the dragon's neck, and the dragon is tamed, right? Mm. And there's, a, and and so I, I looked at it, and you know, Jordan has this whole thing about you know you have to confront chaos, mm-hmm. but I realized there's kind of two methods of confronting chaos. One is sometimes a chaotic potential is just danger, right, and it needs sure. to be. Destroyed. Right. But sometimes it's actually something that can that can that can become good, right? That can yes. that can come into order. Yes. And part of part of confronting chaos is like being a parent and having small children who are hyper chaotic. Mm-hmm. But you don't smash them down, right? Mm-hmm. Space for them and love, which allows them to come forward. And so I started to think that there's like a, a feminine and a masculine aspect of the heroic. And so when I saw Moana, it was like, this is the most powerful expression that when we are confronted with chaos, we have this capacity to use love to bring that thing into order and Mm -hmm. to forth its beneficial potential. Um, Sometimes we don't get to the gold by killing the dragons. Right. We get by becoming friends with the dragon. By transforming the dragon. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was, I thought it was beautiful in that way. And the other aspect of that is that as I've looked at like the the, the kind of Peterson worldview, there's this idea of father culture and mother nature, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this potential for conflict and they both have a negative and a positive. Mm -hmm. And Jordan likes to talk about uh, the role of Christianity a lot. And how Christianity is sort of the most archetypal religion that really gives us the best guide there. Um, And I think maybe that's true, but but one problem I have with that is that I don't see a full representation of the divine feminine within that. Mm. And I have this question in my mind about how well we can use that structure at a time when women have more power than they've had in a very long time. And so we need to be able to see both sides of that potential. And also when, if you think about, you know, if you accept this idea of mother nature and father culture, there's never been a time when father culture is a greater danger to mother nature. Mm. And so for me, Moana, well, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. 
for me, Moana is really weirdly like the 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 inversion of these stories in a way that is actually really profound because yeah. because it's it's father culture Maui who steals the heart of Tefiti, which yeah. then coming to Ka, and it's that feminine aspect of the heroic which is able to restore the heart, which allows the beneficence of Mother Nature to to explode again. So anyways, that's my reading of the story. And I just wanted to share it with you. I was just curious for your, your response to that. Yeah, I don't necessarily identify Maui as father culture in this, in this uh, story. I actually thought of Moana's father as father culture. Still, still a threat though, because he, because to Jordan Peterson's point, the culture had become too um archaic and too afraid of the unknown and um Carl Jung actually has mentioned something about this lack of the feminine within Christianity which led the Roman Catholic Church to accept the divinity of of Mother Mary um that was sort of he said that this was Christianity at least through the Catholic perspective finally um integrating the, the divine feminine into its theological framework, which is an interesting idea. Um, but I would say that, yeah, I mean, I think we're having a lot of conversations about the divine feminine. I think Moana certainly represents that. I see a lot of this represented in a lot of Beyonce's work. I spoke with um, Michaela Peterson, Jordan Peterson's daughter, about this, about the, about the overlap between um, how Beyonce sort of deliberately uh, pays an ode to uh, representations of the divine feminine throughout history. So she 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 very much like associates herself with uh, the Virgin Mary and a lot of the artistry that she has put together on and embodied on stage. She's she's channeled a lot of the work of uh, uh, Vespucci Botticelli and his and his the depiction of um, the divine feminine she's like mimicked that in a lot of her and a lot of her uh like some of when she was pregnant with her twins and in and, and the photos that came out for that she mimicked a, a particular painting uh by Botticelli um and she's also done so through the African uh representation of the divine feminine with uh with the through the Yoruba religion and her more I, I'd say Beyonce has gone from a lot of some artists go from like the particular to the universal, whereas Beyonce has gone from the universal to the particular. So she's been exploring a lot of her African ancestry in her recent works. Um, and she did a, a uh, visual album called Black is King for Disney, which is a retelling of the Lion King story through the prism of the African-American sort of saga. Um, and she takes on this role as the divine feminine um, as a, the anima, as the spirit who wakens Simba um, to find his way home after being sent into exile, both literally, but but really the telling is about spiritual exile, which is which is I, I find so fascinating and, and very um, very intriguing. So I'd say that there's a great deal of refinement to be done when it comes to both the divine masculine and the, and the divine feminine. Um, and perhaps the time is ripe for such a thing to happen. Yeah, I think it's interesting. The other one that occurs to me is if you go back to the oldest story of the, you know, the, the hero and the confrontation with the dragon, mm -hmm. uh, Marduk versus Tiamat, right? Sure. And Tiamat is also the goddess of creation, right? Yeah. And then as we go forward in time, that that conflation of the goddess of creation or that 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 identity of the goddess of creation with the dragon of chaos disappears. Mm -hmm. But in the story of Marduk, you know, ultimately he kills the dry, he kills Tiamat, his you know, essentially mm -hmm. his mother, and makes the world from her flesh. And then you know, that's one of his names. And then in, in St. George and the Dragon, there's a really interesting coda to the story, which is that um, after, after the dragon is tamed, they walk the dragon back to the village, but the people are too afraid of the dragon, and so they throw stones at them. Mm. And then George has to pull his sword out and kill the dragon. 
which I always kind of like, once I had looked at it through this lens, I read that as a rejection of the gifts of the divine feminine, right? Oh, that's interesting. Is that where the story ends? I'm actually not familiar with that one. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's different variants of the story, but yes, that's the, basically where the, the, the version of the story that I remember ends. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I think that people are, um, I'm just thinking about this in conversation, in light of a conversation I had about restorative justice uh, on Twitter. And I think that, uh, well, two things came to mind as you were saying this. I realized that the Kingian wing of the civil rights movement, I think was very much in touch with the sort of the, the gifts of the divine feminine in the sense, if we're defining that as like the spirit that transforms via love, as opposed to the slaying of the dragon, the transforming of the dragon, like the Kingian, the Kingian wing was very much uh, into that, uh, which is interesting. And, that's like a whole set of essays probably that, I, that anyone could write. But, but in addition to that, like when I have conversations with folks about restorative justice and notice that there's a fear involved of, of, you know, shifting from a punitive system to a more rehabilitative system in our prisons. And there's a fear of the chaos that that will naturally, there's a fear of the chaos that might ensue from that shift in focus from the lack of security that might shift in focus. And as you were describing the townspeople who started throwing stones at the dragon, it reminded me of that. So. So uh, I'm very curious about your, I've I've heard you mention in in, in numerous interviews, the Kingian tradition. And Mm -hmm. you dive a little deeper. I just recently read The Strength of Love. Mm -hmm. Um, And and this word agape is something Mm -hmm. that you Big, it's a big influence uh, on my thinking from uh, via the work of John Bervaki. And so I, I, don't, I don't feel like there's a lot of that right now in the way that the dialogue around uh, a lot of these issues is happening. So uh, what do you mean? Like, can you tell me a little bit more about the history of the Kingian tradition and what, what the other traditions within the civil rights movement and within this conversation have been and why you place yourself within the Kingian tradition specifically? Sure. So I would say the Kingian tradition of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was very much in had, had different influences, including St. Og and um, his own theological uh, St. Augustine, yeah. Um, and, and as well as Dr. King's own like moral philosophy, but it a lot of it was rooted in this idea of agape love. Agape is a Greek term, um, and it basically is it entails love for the sake of a human being simply because they're human, simply because they're made in the image of the divine and simply, and by virtue of being human, they are sacred. Um, So it's not, it's not a love that requires you to like the person. (laughs) It's not a love that requires you to feel, um, you know, a particular affinity for that person per se, but it is a love that, essentially inspires a belief in in general goodwill for this for this human being for other human beings and that was very influential because it was from that that the nonviolent movement was rooted in the nonviolent movement wasn't merely a strategic sort of it wasn't just a tactic um, to persuade people to to change it was rooted in the fundamental idea that I will not physically attack back this uh, racist person because even this racist person who's attacking me is also my brother. And so I will, I will fight against their ideological possession that they're caught up in, uh, but I will simultaneously seek goodwill for this human being because even as much as I am entrapped in what this person is doing, he is also entrapped in what, in, in sort of his own delusional thinking about race. Um, and I, f- I just, I don't know why I gravitate toward that. I, just, I maybe it's part of my, because of my upbringing, um, maybe because I feel like I do have a sense of that. I, I do have a sense of the numinous, uh, when it comes to human beings, the sacredness of, hu- of human beings. Uh, I'm enchanted by being human and, and what it means to be human. So I gravitate toward that idea more. I also think it's a very 
difficult uh, uh, philosophy to practice. Um, keep in mind that you know the, the young uh, college students who are part of the civil rights movement who would desegregate the diners would literally practice being beaten up and being spit upon and cursed out so as to not fight back so that when they got to the real diners, they would be able to not fight back. And obviously this created a, a an image on TV and in the media where you had this, this obviously innocent group of people who are being demolished by, by folks who didn't like them because of their skin color. And that helped to turn the tide of, in terms of moral persuasion in America. Um, from, from a philosophical perspective, this idea of the absolute sacredness of human beings, the redeemability of human beings was very much uh, a, a, key, um, a key part of Dr. King's philosophy that resonates with me. And in terms of the other aspects or other wings of the civil rights movement, you know, the obvious foil to that would be the Malcolm X uh, sort of Nation of Islam uh, more militant wing, um, which has its merit. You know, I think that the fact that a lot of uh, a lot of folks would would show up, for example, um, with you know their Second Amendment rights being very much fulfilled. Uh, whenever cops would show up to arrest someone just to make sure that said cops were not abusive in their, in their handling of the situation. Um, I think there's a great deal of strength in, in that, in that sort of more, more militant, like uh, we don't turn the other cheek approach. Um, However, I will say that it's no coincidence that as Malcolm X changed he became a threat to the Nation of Islam, which is why they had him killed. Um, Malcolm X started to individuate more when he went to Mecca and discovered, I think it was Sunni Islam, um, and and started his views about like white people in general started to change. Um, he started to, I think, get a glimpse of the numinous interconnectedness of all human beings, and then he started to criticize the more insular. Um, uh, dogmatic and quite frankly bigoted aspects of the Nation of Islam, uh, and that got him killed. Uh, so, so th- that would be, I think, a good description of the foil to, to one of the foils to uh, the Kingian approach in the civil rights movement. So the, that word agape, I love that word. I, my understanding of it, and. You know, Tell me if you have a different understanding, but I learned that through uh, through um, through John Verveke, and he talks about the idea that you know you have eros, which is the love that wants to consume or become one with, right? Mm-hmm. So sexuality is erotic, but so is wanting to eat a cake, right? When we say sure. love, and then sure. you have philia, which is the love of brotherhood that seeks reciprocation, right? I mm-hmm. scratch your back because I know you'll scratch my back, but then you have um, agape, which is love that is forgiven, that it is given before it is earned. It is given mm-hmm. without being earned. It is given without expectation of being earned. And it's the love that, um, that, that, a, that a, a parent has for a child, right? Mm-hmm. By loving it, you bring it into being, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, you know, if we're talking about that, that feminine principle of the divine hero, right? In sure. some sense, that's the, the idea of being able to love something at a cost to the self because it will, it will grow mm-hmm. with um and i so when i encountered P, uh, peterson's work i got really into the idea that that fundamentally we were in the pursuit of the heroic self through physical practice right mm-hmm. when you talk about what the what the um what the civil rights people went through to me that's about learning to embody virtue right yeah and to have the the strength to, to have those things within you, not just as a proposition in your head, but as something yeah. that's in your body. Um, and so I, I started thinking about what, what are the heroic virtues? It's like, well, you have to be able to recognize that there's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Vision. You have to be able to um, articulate what the problem is, right? Mm-hmm. Be able to describe the problem. And then you have to have, uh, you have to have strength of body to confront it, mm-hmm. emotion confront it and you have to have skills to confront it right? these are the five things and so I was, I was looking at those five things but then I realized that you could actually have all five of those you could be extraordinarily great in all five of them and be an evil person 
Sure. Depending on what you put them in service of. Mm -hmm. that, that makes that takes the heroic from being great to actually being good as well as great is making yourself of service to some higher principle. Mm -hmm. uh, that principle of, of, of agopic love was the thing that to me looks like the best principle you could possibly devote yourself to. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's also a hack, I think, in the sense that it helps us to transcend conflict that is conflict that 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 threatens to sort of uh devolve into like conflict all the way down until like you just there's nothing left um yeah. it gives you a way out of that mindset because it's rooted in transcendence mm -hmm. yeah hey one word that, that you use a lot in your interviews is the idea of um a positive sum versus zero sum which is a which yeah. is a like you know um, yeah like i so i grew up um you know kind of like hippie household right like a far left uh left coast um you know had all the assumptions of of that kind of group of people and then at a certain point i came up through anthropology as a student and i as i was exposed to critical theory and, and postmodernism, I, I really came to have a sense that that the end game for a lot of people was just to take apart Western culture. Mm. Right. And ultimately I was like, well, wait, that's my culture, right? Yeah. That's, that's where, where I'm from. And, and the people that you want to hoist are the people who look like me. Sure. And so my first response to that, and I think that a lot of people are going through this was, well, wait, if we're playing a zero sum game, well, I'm going to choose a side that looks like me. Sure. Right. Yeah. And then this, and then it was, Later, and, and particularly in response to Peterson, that and then later uh, Reiki, that I, I kind of came to this realization that um, the answer to a zero sum game isn't to decide which team you have the best chance on. Yeah. Figure out how you transcend that game. Yeah, it's to play a different game. Yeah. How do we how do we play that game? And that was one of the reasons why I reached out to you because I think you've you've articulated some of those principles really beautifully, right? With, with theory of champion, you talk about. Um, treat people as uh, as humans, not political abstractions. Yeah. Right? Criticize to uplift and inform, never to destroy. To empower, never to destroy. Empower, or to empower, never destroy. And um, and root everything in love and kindness, love and compassion. Love and right? compassion. Yeah. And I think that th those are the fundamental principles that we need in action in order to actually play a positive sum game. Mm. Yeah, I never thought of these as like the rules of the positive sum game, but yeah, that's a good way. That's a useful thing to think to think of these principles as. That's interesting. Um, so this idea of not of treating people as 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 human beings, right? Mm -hmm. I think you know if we talk about again, kind of the themes of this conversation, going back to the idea of how do you. How do you exercise that divine feminine law, if we want to call yeah. it? That. How do you? I think that that starts in the ability to recognize the complexity and um, potential within a human being, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's very specifically divine feminine because the divine feminine is it's one of its attributes. It's it's as the creator of all things. <laughs> yeah. So it's so it's. Yeah. Right. So it's literally the source of un, unlimited potential. It's terrifying because it's also a source of unlimited potential, <laughs> right? But it's but yeah, it's it's that capacity to that capacity to recognize that is very much a divine feminine attribute. So you know, the, the, I always go back to the beginning of the Tao Te Ching, right? The, the mm -hmm. way the is not the eternal way. The yeah. name, mother of all things. The name gives rise to the 10,000 things. And what I, what I always read from that is, right, like our capacity for articulation will never be a perfect match for the world outside of it. And there's always potentials sure. that we recognize. And that it is from the potential that everything arises. Mm -hmm. But within our ability to articulate that specific thing has come into being, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Feel like a lot of times people read that and don't recognize that third clause right 
the 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 named is the father of the ten, or the named gives rise to the ten thousand things, right? So yeah. everything comes from the unnamed, but in order for it to become a thing, it has to become named. Well, this is interesting because I always found it uh, fascinating that whenever a divine figure, which in Moana, in the context of Moana, this is, proves my point that Moana is the anima. She's not the hero. She's like the she's basically the the element of the divine that gives rise to, uh, or that makes the hero possible, or by speaking, allows the hero to come into being. Because when she says to Tika, she says to Tika, I have known, what did she say? I've crossed the horizon to find you, I know your name. And, and this, is a, this is a trope that happens in a lot of spiritual texts where the divine figure says to someone, some being, that they have basically deputized to go do something. They say to this, this, this human, I know you by name. I have called you by name. And I think there's something to that. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I know that there's something to it. Even, even in, the, in the protests this summer, there was this, like, there was this constant repetition of like, say their names, mention them by name, mention them by name. And so there's something specific about articulating the name of a, of a person or telling them that you know them by name, that's very powerful and that perhaps can give rise to the heroic element uh, within us all. Yeah, and in naming something, we in some way bring it into being, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, or in a lot of traditional uh, mythology, also the hero becomes a hero when they earn a name. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I'm a big geek about mythology too. So sure. uh, the first comes to mind is the, the story of Cuchulain. Uh, are you familiar with Oh, I don't know this one. No. Yeah, so Cuchulain is like the main, the, the most famous hero of Irish epic literature. Okay. Wait. So excuse my ignorance, but well, that might be too long of a question. Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, anyways, Cuchulain. Um, he, he's he's the son of a, basically um, the sun god turns himself into a fly and gets drunk in a goblet by the queen, right? And the queen gives okay. the son of the sun god and he's the nephew of the king, right? Um, okay, yeah. So he's the, he's the king's nephew and they send him off to be, you know, fostered and his name's Shatenta. Um, and then he he's growing up and he's, uh, super handsome and he's super fierce and better everybody than everything and he's causing all sorts of trouble and um he he gets invited to come to a feast but he's too busy beating all the other boys at the the game of hurley which is like you know kind of like field hockey um okay. and and so he 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 gets invited to the feast but his 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 uncle forgets that he's coming and he yeah. The, the owner, the, the person who's hosting the feast is the, the Smith Coolin, and he has a, a hound, a giant hound that is super dangerous, and he releases okay. it to protect everybody. And so Coolin is going, uh, Shatenta is going to the feast, and, um, and the hound attacks him, and he picks up the ball and spikes it into the, into the, the hound's mouth with, mm -hmm. with his uh, hockey stick. And it kills the hound. And so Kulin runs out and he's super angry because yeah. he's a very valuable dog. I'm like, what has happened? And so Kulin, uh, Shatenta offers to uh, to guard his uh, his forge for a year and a day. Okay. Kulin, right? Yeah. But it's but it's it's that that's a representation of his transformation from a boy into a man because now he takes on a man's duties. Mm -hmm. right? Now he's responsible for someone else. So it's it's not necessarily the most most illustrative of the themes over here, but I just find it interesting how how we have to be able to discriminate things, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we also have to be able to recognize the unity between things, and that yeah. what we can discriminate is never uh, is never the entire story of what is out there or what is possible. Yeah, it's never the totality. Um, yeah, discernment is is a key is a key function of being human. You know, another way to think of it is there is no creation without uh, limits, and yeah. limit border is a form of 
discrimination or discernment. It's a form of, it's a boundary. Um, and so there can be no creation without boundaries. Um, without boundaries, there would just be nothing and everything at the same time, <laughs> which is the opposite of creation. Yeah, we run into this um, in our work, right? Like we're trying to create play for people and okay. play is often about freedom. But what yeah. people don't realize is that total freedom is actually meaningless, right? Yeah. Great games exist because they have the right amount of constraint to create a clear goal and motivation system and sufficient openness that they're inexhaustible, right? Yeah. So if if you don't have the rule of how to score in soccer, then you can't you can't play. It's no fun. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you make it too strict, uh, it becomes boring. Yeah. So we're always and trying to, yeah, trying to play with that boundary between chaos and order and, and how we find yeah. those. So um, one thing that One thing, you know, we've been talking about divine masculine, divine feminine, and one aspect of that is the, is this sort of um, battle between the the rational and mm -hmm. the intuitive emotional, right? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, yeah. we're talking about not males and females is, is completely different, but these two aspects that we all share. Sure. And one of the things that I, I enjoyed listening to you talk about in some of the interviews that I was listening to was... Um, the cult of progress, right? This idea yeah. that that we we are we have fallen in love with the rational and how yeah. that leading us, but also I feel like we've fallen in love with the over emotional, and that is also misleading us. And so yeah. I've come to have this idea that it's not that we have too much masculine in our culture, or that we have too much feminine in our culture. It's that we have defaulted to very immature models of both. Mm. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> 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 I like that. I'd say that's probably correct. Yeah, that resonates with me. So tell me a little bit about, well, I, I, I haven't read James Baldwin, but after encountering a lot of you, I've gotten really interested in, 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 in James Baldwin and yeah. critique of, of, of rationality. And, and you talked about the idea that, that he talks about sensuality. Mm -hmm. So I was curious, if you could tell me a little bit more about, you know, the shape of James Baldwin's thought and why you think it's really relevant right now, mm -hmm. how, how it plays into these themes. Yeah, so uh, in 19, I think it was 54, Baldwin wrote a piece, wrote an essay called The Fire Next Time, which is probably his most famous essay, in which he basically articulated a set of criticisms about uh, both racist, within white America and the nation of Islam. People tend to forget the last part, uh, or that, that second half. Um, but, the, but the assessment or observation that he makes uh, about uh, white America is, he says at the time that it lacked sensuality, which was a, which he described as a basic, like relationship with life itself, a capacity to give thanks for the bread that's on the on the table at the dinner table and just have a rich enriched uh, uh, experience and relationship with life as opposed to having an experience with life that's filtered through a set of opinions that is imposed upon you and that you're told you have to have or a set of orientations that you're, you're told you have to have with regard to life and um I find that that dovetails with a lot of different uh, assessments of America in general that I've read uh, in both the contemporary uh, way and, in, and, and through previous writers from the past. Like if you were to read uh, Timothy Carney's book, Alienated America, uh, you would like, he also, there's like, a, there's like this sense of a lack of sensuality that he speaks about um, that I think is the, the product of an alienated culture, an alienated people, a people who lack a sense of community, lack of a sense of belonging to and for one another, um, which is a part of that, like, enriched relationship with life that James Baldwin talks about in his essay. And, um, 
you know, there are many different theories as to why this is. This is this seems to be a unique a, a unique thing within America itself. Um, but I would highly recommend reading *The Fire Next Time* and also *Everybody's Protest* novel by James Baldwin because he had a lot to say about our current discontent. Uh, and in some ways, he proved very prescient. We're still dealing with some of the same, like especially when it comes to, like alienation, um, and and the fractional the, the fractionalization of society, the atomization of society and of individuals was something that affected white America uh, back then and manifested itself in racist ways. But it affects everyone, uh, and it, it manifests itself in a whole host of different ways today in twenty twenty. Yeah, that 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 makes me think actually of John Ravicki's work, which I mentioned, you know, a couple of times in this conversation. But Ravicki has this thesis of that we are we are experiencing a meaning crisis, and this is sort of the meta crisis mm -hmm. that overlaps. Yeah, you know, a racial crisis, an economic crisis, a class-based crisis, a, a climatological crisis. Right? Uh, that, that there is kind of a very long history of how we have tried to construct meaning and how it's been disturbed, right? Mm -hmm. It's been disturbed for historical trends that go back quite a long time, but in particular, uh, since the rise of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Kant's separation of the, of the individual into, not Kant, sorry, Descartes. Uh, Descartes' mm -hmm. separation into the mind. And, you know, the mind is essentially the only thing that isn't clockwork, right? Everything else mm -hmm. is just dead matter. Um, and so we've disembodied ourselves and sure. ourselves from our world. So in, in my own work, we talk about this idea that people need a reconnection to the body, a reconnection to um, a deeper understanding of their own mind, mm -hmm. a reconnection to the natural world around us, and uh, a reconnection to community. And that yeah. when, we, when we miss these things, we can't thrive. Yeah. Uh, and the um, Viveki talks about four levels of 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 knowledge, right? There's there's propositional, which is semantic, right? It's I have the idea in my head. It's okay. rule, right? Um, and then procedural is actually being able to do the thing. It's a routine, right? So I can tell you how to fix a car, and that's a set of rules. But to do it, you, you have to actually do it, and then that's a routine. Yeah. Right? And then perspectival is like, well. I can see a car and know how it's doing and, you know, you yeah. know, hear it. Like, what, what is it like to be able to listen to a car and understand how it runs and, right? And then um, participatory is sort of like how that transforms the individual over time, right? Mm -hmm. who, are, who are the person that you become through the things that you do? And that our culture has fallen in love with propositional because it's given us a lot of power. But we've okay. become blinded to these three other aspects, which are what actually give life meaning. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm going to have to do some reading of this guy. <laughs> this guy yeah. I'm yeah. trying to get, get you guys talking. Um, uh, but the, um, when we talk about this, this sense of alienation, I think that sure. that, that I, I see a lot of that in, in the conversation. It seems like people aren't able to actually inhabit their own humanity and then recognize other people's humanity. Yeah, I think people lack meaning and then they project that onto other people who also lack meaning, who project it back. And then there's just sort of this loop effect and no one ends up being the wiser because we're all caught up in these facades of reality as opposed to reality itself. Um, and we don't even know, we, we can't even recognize in some cases that we are suffering, um, which is really bad uh, when you are sort of living in a prison and don't realize it. I mean, that's really, that's really another level of hell on some level, you know? Yeah. Only we can free ourselves from mental slavery. Exactly, yeah. Bob Marley's words were super, super uh, powerful and super, super taken for granted. Uh, but that's no joke, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the the word enchantment, right? Because sure. one of the one of the things that well, well, let me I'll back up. What does enchantment mean to you, and and why mm -hmm. is 
the word that, you know, for the work that you're trying to bring into the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to be mindful. Um, I have to leave in a few minutes, uh, but we can continue this uh, at a later time. But um, I, entrapment is basically like the process by which people come to discover their full selves and their selves potential. And I call it enchantment because I find it, I find that process, basically the discovery of the numinous and discovery of the, uh, of the transcendent within oneself. And that strikes me as enchanting. It's like discovering the light within oneself, it's discovering that light with that, that light actually exists within oneself. So, um, Guy Kawasaki wrote a book called enchantment. He's a former marketing director of Apple and he, describes enchantment as the process by which you delight someone. And I find this process of self-discovery, self-refinement, and even self-transcendent, uh, uh, trans transcendence, uh, delightful. And that's why I call it enchantment. That's beautiful. Uh, self-transcendence, that's a word you'll hear Verveke use a lot, right? Like we're like part of what can give our lives a deep sense of meaning is a sense of self-transcendence of how we become or, or put another way we have to have a relationship with the transcendent we can't yeah. we can't fully thrive without some sense of of being connected to something that is transcendent yeah otherwise otherwise you, there's only limits to how how like i don't know how far you can go on some level yeah, it's interesting because in my community, the, the community of, of kind of people looking at natural movement and then looking at uh, at this sort of broader self-development thing within relationship to movement, yeah. the word enchantment is also coming up a lot. There's this sense that, that through the enlightenment, through the cult of rationality, we mm. have enchanted the world. And that part of what we need to do is to re-enchant the world. So uh, it's a book that I actually haven't read that a lot of people are, are pushing me to read, but it's called Re-Enchanting the World. Mm. And I was, or, um, you're familiar with it. Um, and yeah, because it seems like there's a, it's a slightly different lens on the word, but there's yeah. something deeply congruent also in what you're, the work you're doing and how it connects to that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely check that out. And look, I believe in this model of transcend and include. So I don't think that we should like get rid of the enlightenment. I think as with everything, there are good things and there are problematic things within the enlightenment. Um, and the capacity to recognize that actually translates and transforms one's relationship with the enlightenment in the first place. And I think that that's important to, to point out as well. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. Like I, I often critique, say, capitalism, and that doesn't mean that I think that capitalism is bad yeah. or unnecessary. Yeah. I think you know, a lot of things you'll, you'll hear Peterson talk about, how capitalism has raised so many people out of poverty. That's all true. Mm -hmm. um, it it's also has things that, that, that are running out of control, and we need a kind of uh, a, a balance to that. And I, I'm, I'm very much in favor of... of of a lot of things from the enlightenment of being empirical, yeah. being able to utilize the scientific method of having a really like, I think we need a clear rational epistemology that we can, mm -hmm. that we can use that we know works and creates things. And that's, that's science, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's failed to deliver certain things that we need. And so we do need that to include and, and transcend that model. Yeah. Uh, I love that word. And um, yeah, I, I, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, so I think we'll, we'll have to come back to this because there's sure. a lot more uh, I feel like we could, uh, we could share. Um, but one of the things that I really enjoyed you talking about was the role of art and how um, it's important. So uh, one piece of art for people to think about that can help inform them in sort of emotionally and and psychologically preparing for the moment that we currently live in. Um, mm. Something you could recommend, I'd be curious. Maybe I'd say anything by Aaron Douglas, who is a Harlem Renaissance artist uh, who commissioned the artwork for a book called The New Negro, which came out in, I don't, I don't remember when it came out, but it came out in the Harlem Renaissance period. And his art is very like transcendent and, um, um an embodiment of the numinous that we are 
describing in our conversation. So Aaron Douglas is, is an artist I'd recommend. Excellent. And for people who would like to know more about you, um, we didn't really talk much about your program, except for tangentially, <laughs> but you do uh, anti-racism um, inclusion training, yep. uh, with theory of enchantment, which I think is brilliant. I think I love the principles you're putting into it. I'm very curious about to know more about it. So if anyone wants to look that up, what's the website? Uh, theoryofenchantment.com. And you can also follow us on uh, Instagram at theoryofenchantment or uh, on Twitter at Enchant Theory. And you're just, uh, are you C. Valdery on Twitter? Yes, C. Valdery on Twitter. People can check you out and you post lots of interesting stuff and are famously one of the nicest people on Twitter. So uh, <laughs> thank you. I try. <laughs> you don't lose respect for by following them on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, sure. thank you very much. And I really enjoyed having you and I look forward to uh, being able to continue our conversation. Thank you, Rafe. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.